This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Cycles of American Political Thought. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. And by LegalZoom, a way for regular people to confidently navigate the legal system. If you need help with incorporation, trademarks, last wills and living trusts, and more, don't let legal hurdles become an excuse. Go to LegalZoom.com today and enter amicus in the referral box for additional savings. That's LegalZoom.com, promo code amicus. And by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress by visiting casper.com slash amicus using the promo code amicus. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent. So just about a year ago, we inaugurated this podcast with an episode about the court term that was just then starting to get underway. And longtime Amicus listeners might remember that on that episode, we talked to SCOTUS blog chief Tom Goldstein about, among other things, the court's apparent decision not to take up same-sex marriage in the 2014 term. So much for that. So here we are again on the precipice of yet another Supreme Court term. This is our last episode before oral arguments get underway on the first Monday of October. And so we've invited the L.A. Times' David Savage to help us preview some of the big cases already on the docket for the 2015 term. Now, David has been covering the court and legal issues for the L.A. Times since 1986, and that means he has covered the confirmation hearings of all nine currently sitting justices. He's also one of the savviest court watchers out there. David, welcome to Amicus. Good to speak with you, Dahlia. 
So I wonder if you do one second of uh, precatory service journalism, David. We, we get a ton of emails from people who ask how it is that the court gets thousands of cases that are appealed up to the court, and yet they only hear 70-some cases a year. Can you explain to us how the court decides which cases to take? Well, they're interested in resolving legal questions, uh, situations where the law is a mess, You know, judges in California say the federal law means one thing. Judges in New York say it means something else. And that's why we have the Supreme Court to resolve those disputes. So um, they don't go looking for cases so much as they go looking for big, unresolved legal questions. And so if you approach it that way, you could look through a thousand appeals, and there's only a limited number of that really uh, raise a question where the law is uncertain, where they need to step in. So that's why they sort of go through a whole lot of them to find just those questions that they want to answer. So that's probably a very good setup for today's uh, show, which is previewing the cases, the big, big cases that we know the court will be hearing uh, in the upcoming term. And it does look like one theme is that the court kind of asked for these cases to come up, a lot of the big cases. They either set them up in prior years or invited them somehow through their writing. So I wonder if we can walk through uh, what we know of the 2015 term, which is about to open. But before we do, I want to say a few words about our first sponsor, The Great Courses. Like most of you listening to this podcast, I love to learn just for the joy of learning. And that's one of the reasons I'm a big fan of The Great Courses. I love The Great Courses series on cycles of American political thought because we get this idea that American history is all about actions and fighting and battles. But in fact, it's about the ideas that engendered that action and fighting and battles. And that's what the cycles of American political thought tries to explore, the ideas behind the events. The Great Courses has over 500 courses available in all sorts of subjects, including law, history, science, and they're available in both audio and video formats. The Great Courses created a special limited-time offer for our Amicus listeners, so order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Cycles of American Political Thought, and get them at up to 80% off the original price. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com amicus. So, David, a lot of the conventional wisdom around uh, last term and the relationship with this term is, you know, last term was generally really good uh, for the liberal bloc in important ways. You know, gay marriage, Obamacare and some other uh, big wins on the left, uh, significant uh, losses on the right in some sense. But this year is going to be just you know, flaming torches and arrows. It's going to be really bad for the left. And that was best characterized by a recent article by Jeff Tubin, who more or less said, you know, buckle your seatbelts, folks, because this 2015 term that's coming up is going to really, really decimate core areas of the law for liberals. Uh, Do you have thoughts on that as a theme of the upcoming term? Well, I didn't agree with the the uh, conventional theme, I think, last term, which is that it was a lot of big wins for the left. And, and let me explain what I mean. I think the gay marriage case was a huge victory for the left. But most of the other cases were situations where the conservatives pressed an issue. For example, we should basically overturn Obamacare based on this one provision in the law. This was a, a fairly extreme a proposition when it first came up, and it moved quickly, and the court took it. In the end, 
um, there weren't the five votes to knock out that part of Obamacare, but it kept the law exactly where it was. It's a status quo decision. And there were quite a few of those cases where the conservatives pressed an issue and they lost, but the law didn't move to the left. It was a status quo decision. Now we've got the same thing coming up in the new term, which is the conservatives are pressing the issue of knocking out college affirmative action. They've got the case from Texas to test that. The conservatives are pressing an issue to sort of change in a big way how voting districts are uh, designed to move from away from the total population back to only eligible American citizen voters. And they're pressing the issue of we should knock out mandatory fees for union employees because they violate the free speech rights of, of dissident teachers. In all three cases, it's the conservative block of the court that's pushing that issue. So I think a lot of liberals are right to say, uh-oh, beware, this could be a series of really big conservative wins. The conservatives are, are setting the agenda here. But what we don't know is you know, whether it'll be a repeat of last year where the conservatives fall one vote short. And if they fall one vote short, we'll be writing in the spring and say, oh boy, big liberal victories. But they will be the kind of liberal victories that basically keep the law exactly where it was. Well, let's unpack affirmative action a little bit, because this is indeed a case that the court has looked at before, that has garnered an enormous amount of public interest, David, and that a lot of folks say the court's taking it to kind of finish the job. So can you describe a little bit the Fisher case and how it came to the court and how it's come back? Well, sure. I um, mean, the truth is that there's a, a conservative uh, activist, Ed Blum, who's been interested in pressing this issue. Uh, when the Supreme Court, about 2003, uh, in the Michigan case, basically said, yes, universities, you may consider race as one factor in admissions. The University of Texas, which had suspended its affirmative action plan, began again. And so they started considering race for some applicants. Ed Blum went in search of a plaintiff to sue. He found this young woman named Miss Fisher, who was a good but not great student at a school in East Texas. She didn't get into uh, UT Austin. She went to LSU and graduated. Nonetheless, he filed a lawsuit on her behalf, became Fisher versus the University of Texas. And basically, the complaint was she was suing because her race may have been used against her when she was applying because the university admitted it considered race. Um, we thought, as you said, that that was going to be the big five to four decision that knocks out college affirmative action. And uh, two years ago, the court essentially, after having the case the whole year, punted. And Anthony Kennedy wrote a very strange opinion that basically said, the appeals court, go back and take another look at this. Uh, you should only use race as a last resort. Take another look at it. Uh, the appeals court took another look at it and decided the same thing. They upheld the University of Texas plan and said, gee, if, if it was okay for the University of Michigan to do this, you told us in 2003, it's okay for the University of Texas to take race into account. And now the court, having seen it for the second time, has granted it again. And you tell me, Dahlia, what do they do now? 
Well, it's tough, right? Nothing functionally has changed in two years. Anthony Kennedy, as you said, held it off for another day. Uh, Now I think he's got to contend with it. And it's probably worth flagging for listeners, David, that the difference between the 2003 Michigan case, uh, where the court upheld an affirmative uh, action program, uh, is Sandra Day O'Connor, right? She leaves the court. Sam Alito comes on the court. O'Connor herself was pretty ambivalent about affirmative action, but she felt that we weren't there yet as a society, that we needed a little bit more time to use affirmative action programs to help level the playing field. And when she left the court, that was a crucial vote, correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, Justice Kennedy never had exactly the same view that he did. He's dissented in every affirmative action case. That's why we were very confident. Uh, We thought that they were going to do something more two years ago. You know, it's possible, Dahlia, that uh, Kennedy was unwilling to flatly overturn O'Connor's opinion in the Michigan case. He tried to write around it and couldn't figure out a way to do it. And now the question is back again. Do they overturn, essentially overturn what O'Connor said and say, no, universities, you may not use uh, race as an admissions factor. I should say there's also a possibility, you know, when we looked at Texas before, it's got a very odd situation, which they have this top 10% law, which says if you're a top graduate of any high school in Texas, including a relatively poor high school in the Rio Grande Valley or in the center city of Houston, you can get into the University of Texas at Austin. And they actually do fairly well on admitting particularly Latino and to some degree African-American students. And I always thought it's possible that Kennedy might say, if you're a state university and you found a way to bring a significant amount of diversity to your entering class without using race explicitly, then you may not use race at all. David, does it change anything that Kennedy wrote that fairly surprising opinion at the end of last term about the Fair Housing Act, where he suddenly seemed to have a kind of a deep solicitude for the idea that we do have unconscious biases, that racism still profoundly infects the way we allocate resources? Did that, I guess I'm wondering, A, if that decision from Kennedy surprised you, and B, if you think it informs in any way his thinking about Fisher as it comes up? Uh, Yes, and maybe. Uh, Yes, it surprised me. Uh, And I think you're very uh, smart to point up that to say, hey, maybe there's at least some sign that Anthony Kennedy is sort of shifting to the middle or that, you know, in in a year of uh, Ferguson and all the uh, police shootings and all the focus on race in the criminal justice system, is it possible that Anthony Kennedy is sort of thinking, well, wait a minute, there really is a race problem in this country, and do I want to be the person to say, I'm going to close the door to at least considering race in colleges and universities? So, yes, I mean, I think if I were one of the conservatives in lawyers in this case, I would be very concerned that what he wrote last year in the housing case is that Kennedy may be rethinking his view on what should we say about race in the area of colleges and universities. So I think this case is a very hard one to gauge as to what they're doing. We don't know what the thinking was in 2013, 
And now we're, I think, I have less confidence of, of thinking what the court's going to do about this case in the year ahead. One little detour for gossip, David. Uh, Joan Biskupic reported last year in her big book about Sotomayor um, that Sotomayor wrote a draft opinion in Fisher uh, that she circulated but then actually didn't publish that would have been a dissenting opinion that turned out to be that sort of creed to occur in the Michigan affirmative action case, uh, not the Michigan affirmative action case from 2003, right. the right. recent one where she talked deeply personally about what it is to be a minority and to have not been given the benefit of the doubt. Do you have any reason to believe, A, that uh, Sotomayor's presence on the bench has somehow shaped the way the other justices think and talk about race, and that, B, that may be part of the reason that the court is having a tough time with Fisher? Uh, Yes, I'm I'm sure that it's had some effect. I mean, I, I think Joan is right, is that that may explain why Kennedy didn't press ahead with the opinion that he thought he was going to write in the Fisher case two years ago. I've thought, uh, let me say on the other side of the case, I think the hard thing for the liberal advocates of affirmative action goes to the difference of Sonia from the Bronx and what I would call Sonia from Scarsdale. Uh, Sonia from the Bronx, she personifies why affirmative action seemed like a necessary and good thing. She grew up in the Bronx, relatively poor, struggling family, uh, and and she was a good student. And why wouldn't Princeton or any university say this is the kind of young woman, uh, Puerto Rican heritage, uh, that we would want to open the doors to? And then she excelled as a student at Princeton and Yale. But fast forward to 2015. What if she were Sonia from Scarsdale? Because Texas faces the situation that a lot of the minority students who get good SAT scores come from professional and upper-middle-income families, let's say in the Dallas or Houston suburbs. And the question is, does the university need to give those students an affirmative advantage in admissions because they want to increase the number of Latino or African-American students? And I think that argument is harder to make to be, because you're talking about students who are not from the background of Sonia from the Bronx. They're not the kids who grew up in poor neighborhoods and whose parents did not go to college, but that they're from middle-class families. So just as you should not have to choose from any old random podcaster, you should not have to choose a random lawyer who charges expensive hourly rates whenever you need legal help. The legal system is so complicated. What other choice do you have when you need help with your business or you want to protect your family? Well, start with LegalZoom. They make it easy. For more than a decade, they've provided a way for regular people like you and me to confidently navigate the legal system. LegalZoom is not a law firm, and that's how they provide such great value. They don't rely on charging you by the hour. Instead, you'll get transparent pricing and customer reviews so you know exactly what you're getting up front. If you need help with incorporation, LLC, trademarks, last wills, living trusts, and more, LegalZoom is the smart choice. They've got the right people on hand to answer your questions, and if you need legal advice, their network of independent attorneys can provide the most straightforward guidance you need in most states. Don't let legal hurdles become an excuse. Go to LegalZoom.com today to start building your own future the right way. To save even more, enter Amicus in the referral box at checkout. That's LegalZoom.com, promo code Amicus. 
Let's uh, pivot for a minute, David, and talk about another big, big case that the court has agreed to hear that has to do with public sector unions and First Amendment and speech. Friedrichs is a case that, again, the court has teed this issue up in the past, has practically invited this case to come back. Can you tell us what it's about? Yes, this is a real conservative agenda item case, which is you know, back in the 70s, the court came up with a sort of compromise for public employee unions. And it went like this, that uh, in, in Detroit and other cities, we're going to say that all the the teachers may organize and have a union. And we're going to say that um, those teachers who do not want to belong to the union may not be required to pay dues to pay for politics and, and lobbying to make it a sort of political organization, but they must pay a fee to pay their fair share of the cost of collective bargaining and um, sort of grievances. They must pay the sort of basic cost because otherwise you have the so-called free rider problem is is that I, if I were one of those teachers, I'd benefit from the bargain, and I'd also have somebody to represent me in grievances, but I wouldn't be paying anything. So the compromise is all public sector union employees where there is a union must pay this fee. Uh, So the court said that in 1977, a case called Abood. So fast forward to the more recent era when conservatives like Scott Walker in, in Wisconsin and other Republican governors are going after public sector unions and saying, these collective deals have been bad for the people of the state. We're going to do what we can to undercut Uh, the public sector uh, unions. The Supreme Court in a couple cases, all of which Sam Alito has written, where he's basically said, wait a minute, doesn't this seem to violate the free speech rights? If you're a dissenting employee, you don't want to be part of this union. Nonetheless, your money is taken to help fund this union. Doesn't Doesn't that put you in a position of the government is forcing you to support a cause you don't want to support? And so he said that a couple times, suggesting that there is a First Amendment problem, and lo and behold, one of the conservative groups filed a lawsuit in California challenging the union fees that California teachers must pay. They lost in the lower court. They lost in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit said, wait a minute, the Supreme Court resolved this 40 years ago. But the Supreme Court has now granted that case, and the question is, does it violate the First Amendment to require public employees who are part of unions but don't want to be part of the union to pay a fair share fee to support the union. And and this is sort of like what we said about Fisher insofar as the court recently had an opportunity if they wanted to eviscerate Abood, that 1977 case, they could have done it only two years ago and they didn't do it. So is this sort of an example of that incrementalism that the Roberts Court is famous for where they almost do it one year and then a couple years later they come back and do it, do it? Uh, yes, but it's also an example of what we were just talking about with Fisher is that there was a, a group of justices to push this issue, but they stopped just short of resolving it in a big way. So the first case, you know, Fisher, we don't know whether the five of them are going to unite and say no to affirmative action, and we don't know whether five of them are going to unite in this case and say no forced fees 
it was very unclear from the argument. Justice Scalia uh, seemed to be the one who was most uh, unwilling to take a big leap in this case because he had written an opinion about 20 years ago in a case involving colleges and saying, you know, the free rider argument makes sense to me that, that the, the government is telling this union you have to represent everybody. Well, then why shouldn't everybody have to pay? So we will know, I guess, again, in the spring, whether there's five votes ready to make a big decision or that there are four and one leaner and they can't get a fifth vote to um, actually decide the big issue. Four and one leaner might actually become the name of Justice Kennedy's autobiography. That's, I like it. (laughs) Before we move on to the third big case on the court's docket, I want to tell you about one more sponsor this week. If you're anything like me, you really like to sleep, especially if you're plowing your way through some really boring legal treatise. And that's why we're so excited to tell you about our third sponsor today, Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper offers you an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Mattresses that will afford you just the right sink, just the right bounce. And they incorporate two technologies, latex foam and memory foam. Casper also offers you a risk-free trial and return policy. So try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. These mattresses are made in America, and they are incredibly affordable. Only $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Now, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com amicus and using the promo code amicus. David, let's turn briefly, if we could, to a case that raises this big existential question of what the definition of one person, one vote is. Um, This is another big, big case that the court has in some ways invited uh, the conservatives on the court, specifically in this case, Clarence Thomas. Can you just briefly outline this other big, big challenge the court's going to hear? Yes, and I should mention again Ed Blum, because the same conservative activist who pushed the affirmative action case in Texas has for many years been interested in this issue that I must say, I had never, I was completely unaware of until Blum started sending this issue up to the court. And and as you correctly said, Clarence Thomas wrote an opinion saying that he thought this was a good issue the court should uh, take on. When uh, state legislatures draw district lines for the state assembly or the state senate or for the congressional districts, basically under the one person, one vote rule, you have to get districts that are essentially of even size. You don't want uh, you know one district to have 10,000 people and another district to have 1,000 or whatever. You want them to be the same size so that all the voters have roughly the same share of, of power. Well, the numbers that states use to do that are the total population numbers. That is, the numbers that, you know, come in the U.S. Census. But Ed Blum made the point is, wait a minute, if it's a one-person, one-vote rule, shouldn't you divide up the districts based on the number of actual or eligible voters? So stop and think about that for a minute. What does that mean in California or Texas? Well, there are a lot of districts around Los Angeles and around Texas where a significant percentage of the population may be non-citizens and not eligible to vote, but they are counted as part of the total population. So Blum says 
the way we're doing it now, the way Texas has been doing it, the way California is doing it, is essentially uh, unconstitutional because you're dividing up districts not based on the one-person, one-vote rule, but using the total population. And it's worth, I think, pointing out, David, that this really was a huge surprise, that this was, I think most of us thought of this as a kind of a thought experiment, you know, some some kind of cool law review proposition. But the idea that there are four justices willing to grant cert and sit down and grapple with what we thought was a fairly established principle of how we define one person, one vote in this country really is, I think it can't be overstated. This was a big surprise. Yes, and it's the kind of thing that ordinary, I don't know, uh, uh, voters or ordinary people may not think about or be aware of, but it's it's really a part of the mathematics of power in most states because uh, this would be a way to, if the court were to buy this and say, no, you must use a tally of eligible voters, it shifts power in the state legislature and possibly in Congress away from districts with large percentages of uh, you know, uh, Latinos and whatever, and and more towards a sort of uh, white Anglo conservative uh, communities. It would sh- it shift power because it would um, diminish the number of seats in a legislature in those areas that have large percentages of uh, Hispanics. And this all comes up purely coincidentally, I guess, against the backdrop of Donald Trump, right, willing to talk in pretty inflammatory ways about uh, the privileges of citizenship and uh, his fears about uh, non-citizens who live in this country. So I I wonder if the court is a little bit regretting having taken this case in light of the sort of subsequent conversation we're now having, which feels pretty toxic in ways that, you know, if, if, as you said, Justice Kennedy is affected by the national discourse around race. I wonder if the ways we're talking about immigrants right now uh, is making the conservative bloc a little nervous about agreeing to take on this case. Well, I don't know, Dahlia. I mean, if you mean Justice Kennedy, you may be right. He may be a little nervous. My guess is some of them think, see, uh, there's a large group of people out there who sort of agree with us that... uh, why should we be giving congressional support to areas that basically just have a lot of illegal immigrants? David, I want to ask you one last question that I suspect a lot of listeners are wondering, and that is when the term wrapped up at the end of June, there was a lot of strong language, a lot of acrimonious, ugly uh, dissents and opinions. The justices looked, uh, at least to me, as though... They just, I think I wrote somewhere, they were ready for a nap and a snack. And they really, uh, in some cases, it looked like it was personal. What do you think happens over the summer? Do the justices have sort of lingering grudges? Do they lie awake in their beds and say, man, I wish I'd written, you know, shut up uh, instead of uh, what I wrote? Do they, do they, how do they kind of get past some of the rancor that comes with the close of term and reboot themselves? Or uh, do they just not get past the rancor? Are they mad at each other as we lead up into these opening uh, weeks of the term? Well, the truth is, I, I, I don't know. I, I do know what they all say is that when they go away for the summer and, and you come back, a little time passes. And uh, I mean, I, I can imagine maybe this is, I don't know what your office is like or what my office has been like in the past, but different people have sort of 
you know, difficult situations with people in your office and you go away for a vacation and you come back and two months down the road or whatever, you can't even remember to some degree, what is it we were arguing about? So I think there's some of that, that they can sort of move on and move on to the next case. And they all say they they like each other as sort of office friends. They're not true friends that they really go out of their way to be see each other away from the office, but they're sort of office friends. They get along. And I also think it differs by the people. For example, I actually think Sam Alito is somebody who more holds a grudge. There's sort of some bad feeling, and it lingers on. I think some of the others are just more used to, oh, this is just part of Kennedy will say, you know, it's just part of being on the court or Scalia sort of – Scalia can be really mean in in his uh, legal writing and comments, but then be exceedingly friendly. I mean, the famous example, of course, is Ruth Ginsburg. They are great friends, even though he writes very harsh things at times about her opinions. And Scalia just has that view of the matter. I, re- I remember going to see him – once after the, you remember the period where he was writing all those bad things about Sandra O'Connor, her opinions <laughs> are not to be taken seriously. And yeah. I said, you know, I said, you know, you were pretty hard on her. You, you really right. And he said, oh, you know how that is. You come out to the middle of the ring, you, you tap gloves and you come out swinging. And I said, well, I don't think she sees it as a boxing match. But, you know, his view is that's just the way the game is played. You know, you, you know, we're in the law business. And so we fight over the law, but we're still friends and it doesn't have anything to do with you know, how we get along personally. And so I think a lot of them, Scalia is a good example of that. A lot of them have the view as, you know, we have our legal disagreements, but we go away and we can back and we can get along as as friends. They know that there are some things they're never going to agree on, but my impression is they managed to, after two or three months, put that aside and start over again for another term. Well, then I suppose we should all put our rancor aside as well and uh, look forward to the opening of the 2015 term. Uh, David Savage has been covering the U.S. Supreme Court and legal issues around the court for the L.A. Times since 1986. David, it is just a joy and a pleasure uh, both to read you and to have you on Amicus. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Well, thanks, Dolly. That was fun. And that is going to do it for this last Amicus episode before the first oral arguments in the new Supreme Court term. We are always eager to hear your thoughts and questions, and you can send them all to amicus at slate.com. We read every one of your letters, and we do our best to respond, and we really enjoy hearing from you. We also really love reading your reviews of the show on our iTunes page. So if you haven't already left one, please consider doing so. It's a really great way to help other people find out about the podcast. Our show page is slate.com slash amicus. All of our past episodes are there, as are transcripts of the shows. But you need to be a Slate Plus member to access those transcripts. You can always become a member at slate.com slash amicus plus. Thank you, as always, to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is recorded. Our producer is Tony Field, and Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our whole roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. We'll be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.